0: Thank you, Pastor, for the invitation to be here. Uh, as always, it's a great honor to be back at Calvary, and it's wonderful to see so many old friends and gain the opportunity to make new friends. Thank you again for the invitation. This uh, this book, uh, David the Great, is the. Somebody asked me how long did it take you to write that. The real answer is a lifetime. I have been intrigued as probably many of you have been with the complexities of David's life. And I've studied, preached on, taught about, lectured on the life and leadership of King David, probably uh, more than any other topic in scripture with the exception of the Lord. He uh, is just a fascinating character. I wanted to write a book that was different from any other book I've ever written This book has a slightly different style than I've I've ever written before. I wanted to reach two reading publics, markets that are not easily reached with contemporary Christian books. Women, Women are who buy books. All publishers know that. Women's topics by women writers. But there are two groups that all Christian publishers strive to reach, and one of those is men. I wanted to reach male readers. And this book has taken off with male readers. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled with that. And why not? David was a man's man. This, David was a, a warrior's warrior. And he's a, a tough guy, a man's man. This is a guy you want to take deer hunting with you. You might not, you might not want him to take your wife deer hunting. The second group I wanted to reach was, uh, was millennials. I lectured uh, at two different universities m- multiple times, and as a guest at other universities, to millennial audiences. And I found that they were absolutely intrigued with the possibility of David being relevant and practical to their lives. So I tried to write a book in such a way that it is relevant, practical, and, and digestible. I'm not talking about dumbing it down. I'm talking about making it accessible. People think that millennials don't read. That's not true. They just read differently. And so I've tried to write that book, and it seems to have worked with both of those. I hope it will work with you. One precious lady at the last church where I was bought uh, 10 cases. I said, may God bless your house. But why? Why? Why are you buying 10 cases? She said her, husband, her son was a staff sergeant. And she said, I'm buying a book for every man in his unit. Uh, another man bought for all the policemen in his community, uh, cases of them. And so I'm, I'm delighted with those kinds of things. You probably don't need to hear me say this, but I need to say it. I do not take one penny from any book I've ever written nor from this, uh, all of the proceeds, Any place I speak, love offering, honoraria, all book sales, product sales, there's no smoke and mirrors here. It all goes 100% to foreign missions. So I hope you'll go out to the book table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. Mortgage your house. If you have your Bibles now, if you'll take those and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13, 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture which are basically the same, one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. Now, when God repeats Himself across the expanse of the two covenants, it means that you should pay attention. Why is this said yet again? So 1 Samuel chapter 13, Samuel the prophet is speaking to Saul David's father-in-law and predecessor. Samuel says to Saul, But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Now turn to the book of Acts. Coincidentally, also chapter 13. and verse 21 following, And afterward, they, meaning the people of Israel, sometimes the pronoun references in uh, the King James Bible are a bit obscure. So will you mind, as you follow me there, I'm going to insert the nouns for the pronouns. I'm not doctoring the scripture. I'm just going to give you the nouns. And afterward, the people of Israel desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when God had removed Saul, God raised up unto the people of Israel David to be their king. To whom also, this is important, look at this one. To whom also God gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will of this man's seed, springing from David's DNA. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Put your hands on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Padre glorioso, te damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en este mañana. Gracias por tu gracia y por tu amor precioso. Ayúdame, por favor con tu espiritu santo su gloria si es posible glorifica tu nombre mensaje. Lord, we praise you, we thank you. I yield myself to you as fully as I know how to do, and I'm asking you to do all the rest, rush in over the threshold of our souls, and speak to us by your might, in the inner person of everyone here, in the mighty name Jesus the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. I was in uh, Tiberias in Israel uh, working on this manuscript, as a matter of fact. I was sitting at an outdoor concrete picnic table right by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, as we call it, and I was paying attention to the manuscript and not watching. Uh, An Israeli woman walked up to the other side of the table and when I looked up, She spoke to me first in Hebrew, and I I said, Ma'am, I'm I'm an American. You'll have to switch to English if you speak English. And she said, Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. She said, What are you doing? I said, I'm writing a book. She said, What about? I said, "Uh, David. I'm in Israel speaking to an Israeli woman. I said, David. She said, David who? I said, Well, actually, King David. (laughs) King David, you're king she stepped back like I had touched her with a cattle prod and got a horrible look on her face. And she said, why? Why would you write a book about that bloody man? And she turned around and stormed off. And I thought to myself, what manner of man is this that 3,000 years after his death can still make a woman that angry? I want to, uh, I want to share with you, when when one begins to write a book, especially about a subject as massive as David, one accumulates a great deal of research, and then what you have to do is sort of carve off what you're not going to use. And so uh, I'm not going to lecture out of the book this morning. A great deal of what I want to say is some of that which I carved off, and there's nothing more tedious than somebody reading to you from his own book. Uh, let's let 's just try to get who this David was first of all let 's position him historically. so many people have um, the layers of biblical history conflated, and they they can 't tell when Abraham, there's nothing that reveals this to you any more than when you take a, a group to Israel on a tour. They always say, is this where Jesus walked? I say, yes, definitely. It's also where Abraham walked and where David walked. It, the layers of history biblically are, are often molded, melded in people's minds. David lived 1,000 years before Christ. He lived 1,000 years before Christ. In other words, three years. Thousand years ago. Now let's let's think what was happening. Go back to your courses in, in uh, history and uh, and um, um, sociology and etc. When you were in college, three thousand years ago was right at the end of the Bronze Age. Right on the cusp between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Now, because that, the advancement of that technology was not monolithic worldwide, it didn't happen always at the same time. Some places were already into the Iron Age, while other places were still stranded pretty far back in the Bronze Age. In Israel, David actually lands exactly on the cusp. The first iron weapon mentioned in the Bible is the head of Goliath's spear, is mentioned as being made of iron. Now, why would it mention that specifically unless the technology was so new that it was worth being mentioned? So we're talking about the ancient world 3,000 years ago. So when we think about King David and David's palace and things like that, you can't think about Queen Elizabeth. You can't think about, uh, about Buckingham Palace. David was really more of a... A Bronze Age warlord. I was uh, lecturing at a certain university on David and when I got finished I took some questions. Uh, speakers that are more confident than I am call these sessions Q&A, but that presupposes that you will actually have answers. So I tend to call them Q&R, I only promise to respond. But my first question was a young boy, young college student right in the front, he raised his hand and he said, Dr. Rutland, I have a question. He said, I know that David was one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, but here's my question. I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's deal with that first. I said, first of all, David was not one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. He was not a Christian. It's really hard to be a Christian a thousand years before Christ. David was a Jewish warlord who lived his entire life in an extremely violent epoch of human history. Conquest, reconquest, war, fighting, violence. David was was a man who lived in a Bronze Age world of constant violence. Therefore, we cannot look back on the life of David and project onto him our 21st century Christian or even Judeo-Christian values. For example, David was a polygamist on a pretty impressive scale. He had many wives and concubines. That doesn't make any sense to us. We know that God's plan is one man and one woman. We know that God had revealed that from the Garden of Eden. But as As the the people of God in the Old Testament work their way through the unfolding revelation of who God is, there are often these phases where things like that go, David was a polygamist. But we we have to understand who he was in the era in which he lived. He was an an emperor, a warrior king, who was expected to have a harem. And he did, a pretty, pretty sizable group of women that were all his, women who were his wives and his concubines. It it jangles our nerves. We see this, um, we see this little cute little David. Anybody here old enough? I'm probably nobody in the house as old as I am, but does anybody old enough to remember uh, Sunday school felt boards? You raise your hand if you remember that three and the rest of you are liars. Um, Yeah, you remember the felt board in Sunday school and David uh, was always the cute little curly-haired kid with this slingshot and put him up on the felt board and there was the massive giant Goliath and that was about all anybody either knew two things about David, David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba. Apart from that, they didn't really have any understanding of David. We have to understand David as a man and David in, in the life and the era of history, the epoch of history in which he lived. Second, let's situate David biblically. David is born a thousand years before Christ in the same small remote village of Bethlehem. But before David, Bethlehem is also mentioned. Remember the troops of Joshua cross the Jordan River and conquer Jericho. In the city of Jericho, there is a um, a pagan uh, Gentile prostitute who who hides the... Uh, the spies of Joshua saves their lives and they tell her you remember the story if you will put a scarlet cord out the window when the city is conquered we'll save everybody that's in that house alive and and that prostitute Rahab and her family are saved alive that prostitute Rahab ex-prostitute by this time marries one of Joshua's soldiers a man named Salmon now it is not clear in scripture that Salmon was one of the spies, but it appeals to my romantic heart and I have the microphone. <laughs> but it does make sense, doesn't it? That she saved his life, he remembers her, he falls in love with her, he goes back, saves her and marries her, but whether or not he was one of the spies or not, he was one of Joshua's soldiers. They, they uh, uh, marry and their son, Is a man named Boaz. Boaz marries a Gentile. His mother was a Gentile. He marries a Gentile named Ruth, for whom the entire book of Ruth is named. And when she returns with her mother-in-law, her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, to her hometown, it's Bethlehem. And there they fall. Ruth and Boaz fall in love and get married. They have a child named Obed. He has a son, Whose name is Jesse, and he has a son whose name is David. So David's DNA, this is this is what God says in in the book of Acts. From the DNA of David, I will bring forth Messiah Emmanuel. I, Jesus will spring from the DNA of David. And that DNA is complex in it are not only included the wives, the women, but two Gentile women, one of whom was an ex-hooker. So God always tells the truth about David. That, that story didn't have to be told. They could have tidied that up. But God tells the truth, the whole truth. He wants you to understand this is a complex man in a complex era of human history, and his, even his DNA is complex. Now let's talk about David as the man. Complex is the word to use. David is a complex, multifaceted genius in a variety of genres which would apparently be mutually exclusive. First of all, David is a genius at war. He's a genius at killing. His first dramatic appearance in Scripture is killing a man. I went through in preparation for this book, I didn't include it in the book, but I, I started doing research. I wanted to know how many people going through scripture, David either killed personally or were killed by his extended agencies, armies and soldiers, whatever. When I got into the tens of thousands, I just dropped it. David David is a man of violence. That woman in the Sea of Galilee, when she called David a bloody man in in many ways, that's right. David is a man of violence who lived in a violent age. He's a warrior, and he's a genius at it. He was a genius strategically. We, um, we ascribe the death of Goliath to be totally supernatural, which it was supernatural. But David actually, even as a small boy, was thinking strategically. Goliath, we are told, had a man who carried a, soul, a, a shield. And that shield was so big that one man just carried it and stood in front of Goliath. In other words, all Goliath had to do was stand behind that shield and David's stones would have just bounced off. David knew what I've got to do is get this guy out from behind his shield. So David starts all this trash talk it's like he's on a basketball court somewhere, and he's just lacing into the glass till he gets him so angry, he rushes out from behind the shield, and then David drops him with a stone. He thinks strategically. There are multiple battles in David's life that are basically impossible to win. Certainly, the supernatural hand of God is upon him. But twice in the valley of Raphaim, David wins over massively, larger armies than his because he thought and responded to God's direction and guidance strategically. David was a a supreme warrior, but how can that guy, with blood to his elbows, turn around and write heart-rending poetry that is still beloved and memorized and translated into thousands of languages 3,000 years after his death? How can a man who has spent his life killing write the 23rd Psalm, which is the most frequently memorized and quoted passage of Scripture in two major, lang- two major religions of the world? How can that man then be a warrior and a poet? He was also a, a musician. There is no indication in scripture, you cannot prove a negative, but there's no indication in scripture that anybody in David's family, anybody else in David's family was musical. He was, a, he was a child prodigy. They sent this little boy into the pasture to tend the sheep and he came back playing the guitar like Johnny B. Good. They've got, now all of a sudden, they've got Chuck Berry in the house and he's writing his own music and singing songs. David won the Israeli version of The Voice. He's a little boy in a remote village in Judah when the king Saul in Benjamin at the capital of Gibeah is so demonically oppressed that he can't sleep at night and the fame of this child's musical ability is already so well known that they send all the way to Judah to Bethlehem to fetch him and sing the king to sleep at night. So he's, he's a warrior, he's a poet, he's a musician. He is, he is also, and this is probably one part in the book that I, I want to mention. I've never read a book that indicated David as a CEO. David was a fantastic CEO a leader. Near the end of his life, David restructured the entire federal bureaucracy of Israel in preparation for the next king. Then David restructured the worship and religious uh, and liturgical bureaucracy. And then David mounted a capital campaign. And when you read the capital campaign, it is the, it is the perfect model of a modern capital campaign. Lead gifts, top tier, second tier, third tier, all the way through. And it was modestly successful, modestly successful. Um, economists who claim to know these things, and we have to take their word for it say that if you take all the money that David raised in his capital campaign and translate it into modern American currency, that David raised $56 billion. 56 billion, every time I say that, I see pastors all over the world say, praise God. $56 billion. Then he arranged for the architectural plans for the temple. He certified them. He warehoused the material for the temple. So that when Solomon came to the throne, all he had to do was use the material that David had warehoused, use the architectural plans that David had certified, and spend the money that David had raised. And David did all that knowing that his name would never be out front. It was never gonna be called David's temple. He prepared the whole thing, restructured the government, restructured the religious bureaucracy, raised the money, warehoused the material, knowing that it would always be called Solomon's temple. That's that's quintessential leadership at its best in the the role of a CEO. So, what do we say about this guy? What do do we say about him? The complexity of his life, the complexity of his character. First of all, let's deal with this. Everybody knows the story of David and Bathsheba. There are people that know the phrase David and Bathsheba, and they don't even know what's in the Bible. They think it's Shakespeare. David, David was like so many giants, intellectually and, and leadership-wise. He was like the girl with the curl in the middle of his forehead. When he was good, he was very good, and when he was bad, he was horrid. David's sin with Bathsheba is, is horrible. It was horrible. Adultery. Not just adultery, but adultery with the wife of one of his most trusted generals, a faithful, loyal, good man, Uriah the Hittite, who served David and was, in many respects, a better man than David. So we know the story. David steps out on his balcony. I hardly need to repeat it for you. There's this beautiful woman bathing naked in the moonlight. David summons her to his house and sleeps with her, seduces her. It is a classic case of the exploitation of power and fame over a poor and vulnerable housewife. Seduces her, and in that night, impregnates her. She sends him an email a couple of weeks later. (laughs) Says, hey, (laughs) I seem to be pregnant. So David summons her husband home from the battlefield, Uriah, believing, assuming that, of course, while he's home, he will go spend the night with his wife and David can palm his baby off on his friend. But Uriah, as I said, is a better man than David. Uriah says, your majesty, I can't, I can't go sleep in a warm bed with my wife. My soldiers are in the field. They're sleeping in bedrolls in the desert. I, I can't go sp- spend the night with my wife. But he says, I'm here in Jerusalem. I can serve one useful purpose. Let me lie down outside your door and I'll be your personal security guard for tonight. What a guy. Que hombre. David rewards him by murdering him. And then waits as long as he can wait, marries Bathsheba, and the country blinks. Nobody wants a scandal. They're willing to let it go. The baby is born. Everybody celebrates. It looks like the whole thing is under the carpet. It's finished. And then this little prophet, not Samuel, but Nathan, This feisty little guy comes into the courtroom and accuses David publicly. Not private, this is not a private meeting. He confronts him in front of the court. the open, all everybody's there, all the lords and ladies and the knights, everybody's there. Tells David this cockamamie story about the rich man who killed the poor man's lamb and ate it and all that kind of thing. David is outraged. Oh, he says, this man deserves to die. Nathan says, you're right, he deserves to die. You're the man. You are the man. (laughs) That's a a pretty powerful moment. Nathan says, I know what you did. God revealed everything to me. God revealed to me about sleeping with Bathsheba. God revealed to me about the murder of Hittite, of of Uriah the Hittite. I know everything that you did. The air all goes out of the room. Do you remember, this is not some kind of a democracy. David's an emperor. All David has to do is snap his fingers, and somebody would take that prophet's head off. Probably Joab. David's right-hand man is his kinsman, Joab. This is a very lethal dude. He would kill you. This guy would bust a cap in you for a quarter. All David has to do is just do like that, and Joab would gut him. Instead, David says, He's right. I did it all. That's that's the complexity of David. On the one hand, adultery and murder. On the other hand, a public confession, repentance. The baby dies. Nathan says the baby's going to die. David fasts. He prays. Everything else, the baby dies. And David... Still married now to Bathsheba. Moves on with his life. Country's ready to forget. And David, who writes music, not only sings and plays, but he's also a composer and a poet. He calls uh, Asaph, the chief musician, over to the palace, and he says, look, I wrote this new new song here, and I, I want you to sing it on Shabbat at the tabernacle. As Seth begins to read it, and his hands start to shake. And he says, Your Majesty, please just don't read this. Don't sing this. Don't do this. He says, Look at this language, Your Majesty. In sin, as my mother conceived me, and in iniquity was I born. That which I've done, and that's the evil that I've committed in thy sight, is ever before me. I can't quit thinking about it. He says, Your Majesty, people are going to think this is. Let me be frank with you, sir. People are going to think this is about Bathsheba. Everybody wants to forget it. Let's not dredge it up. People are going to think this poem's about Bathsheba. David says it's about Bathsheba. He says, give it to me. And David writes the superscription above his own poem, a psalm of David when he went in unto Bathsheba. He says, I don't want it ever forgotten. David memorializes his own sin. He says, as long as the people of God read the Word of God, I want them to know what I did. (laughs) That's That's the complexity of David. But look at the psalm further. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What is hyssop? The little bush, the shrub. That the priest would dip in the blood of the sacrifice and splatter for cleansing. A thousand years before Jesus is born, David is pleading for redemptive grace through the blood of a sacrifice. Wow. Does he stop there? He does not stop there. Then he says, Cleanse me inside. Create a new heart in me. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. A thousand years before Paul the Apostle explores the nuances of Trinitarian theology in one poem, David is dealing with forgiveness, the fatherhood of God, and the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit. Shall David then be numbered among the prophets? We are left with this conundrum. It is, the, it is the question that everybody has. All of the great and admirable characters of the Bible, you, you want a real, pure hero? It's Joseph. Daniel. What, what? Why would God say, not once but twice, once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, a man after my own heart? We might excuse Samuel. Samuel says it before we actually meet David. God has chosen a man after his own heart. He's speaking in the third person of someone. But St. Paul says it a thousand years after the death of David when we know everything, his sin with Bathsheba, the destructiveness of it. Listen, the sin with Bathsheba is not even nearly the most destructive sin that David committed. Everybody knows David and Bathsheba. But only two people died. The nation was hurt and wounded and confused and scandalized, but only two people died, Uriah and the baby. But David, David called for a census that was forbidden. He did it anyway because he was proud and arrogant and egocentric and he called for the census. And as a result of that, God punished Israel and 70,000 people died. 70,000 people died. That's a a pretty destructive sin. And still, looking back on all that, St. Paul says, God testifies of this man. He is a man after mine own heart. So we are left with this question. Why would David be called a man after mine own heart? I don't know that I can resolve that for anybody else. Let me give you the image that comes to me. David is like one of those powerful running backs who comes through and gets into the deep secondary and he comes at you all helmet and knees and power. Okay, you may bring him down. You can bring him down, but he's gonna fall forward for three and a half yards. And not only that, you know you've only got him down temporarily. He's going to get up and come at you again and again and again because his mind is so fastened on that end zone, so fixed on the goal line, that all you can do is delay him. But you know you can't stop him. That's David. David would say to us in this house today, okay, I'm not saying you'll never fall, but if you fall, fall forward. Fall at the foot of the cross. Everybody may fall, but if you fall, rise. Rise and go again. Get up off of the mat and lift your weary gloves and wade back in. That's that's David. That's that's the man after in pursuit of God's own heart. With passion. Well, let me close with this. You've been very patient. Uh, I'm already going a little late, so just stay with me for one minute. I'm like St. Paul in the book of Ephesians who said finally and wrote four more chapters. So, what, What do we say about this man? Warrior king, adulterer, murderer, poet, musician, CEO, leader, nation founder. Saul notwithstanding, David is the father of his nation. He is certainly the founder of Jerusalem. So what do, we, what do we say? Is David also a prophet? In Psalm 22, not David's most famous Psalm, 23 is his most famous, 51 would be next. But in Psalm 22, David describes in graphic detail the nightmare of of death by crucifixion. He describes what it would be like to hang there naked and you're even so, so beaten that the, the bones in your body show. He says, even my bones show. He describes the thirst. The roof, my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. Do you remember on the cross that Jesus cried out, I thirst. He even, he even says they have pierced my hands and my feet. You know what I think? When he took that psalm to Esaph and he said, sing this one. I think Esaf read it, and he said, okay, Your Majesty, I gotta tell you, I don't even know what this is about. You know what I think David said? I don't either. I just know that when I was writing this, it was pouring through me. Just sing it. He even describes in Psalm 22, he says, they shall cast lots for my garments. Do you remember when the Roman soldiers knelt down at the foot of the cross and shot craps for Jesus' robe? David saw that a thousand years before it happened. Here's one of the most remarkable things. David described crucifixion hundreds of years before the Romans invented it. David had never seen a crucifixion. Well, what we might say, and I think it has some weight, is we are looking back through the cross and we are projecting that description on Psalm 22. That's not really about the cross. That we, We're looking from our Christian perspective on the cross and projecting back onto Psalm 22. And I see the validity of that argument except for one thing. As Christ died... He cried out from the cross in Hebrew, Eli, Eli Lama My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is verse 1 of Psalm 22. When you are dying in unspeakable agony, naked on a cross, you're not hanging there thinking at a cognitive level, what could I say here that would validate King David? That flows up out of the reality of the moment and the God that is within you. From the cross of Calvary, the Messiah, a thousand years after David's death, validates David as a prophetic word. What manner of man is this? David was complicated, complex, deeply flawed, a genius, and a man after God's own heart. When we approach the life of King David, we are actually approaching one of the critical figures in all of biblical history. He stands as a fulcrum, and God says, Messiah will come from this complicated, flawed man. If you hear all this and you read the book, which I hope you will, and your only thought is what a great man David was, then I failed. If you hear what I say today and you say, what a great man David was, this sermon was a failure. But if you hear all this and you say, if God can use a person so deeply flawed as David, He can use even me. If you say what a great man David was, that's fine. But if you say what a great God was, the God of King David, then blessed be the name of the Lord.